0: Psalm five, Psalm five. You know, I'm married. My wife's a gator, so. But uh, anyway, God works miracles, right? All right, all right. Psalm chapter five. Journey through the Psalms. Uh, here is a summary of the Psalms. This comes from Doctor Kendall Easley. A uh, professor I had in seminary, he's written a one-sentence summary uh, for every book of the Bible. And I find that to be immensely helpful. I'm a, I'm a, a big-picture guy. It helps me to see things from a big-picture perspective. And he writes, God, the true and glorious King, is worthy of all praise and prayer, thanksgiving and confidence, whatever the occasion in personal or community life. So what he's saying here is this. The Psalms are very helpful If you're on a mountaintop or in a valley, they're helpful. They're helpful to help you to understand how to praise God as you go through that situation or circumstance in life. And they help you to remember to trust God as you go through that situation or circumstance in life. I like what John Piper says about the Psalms. The Psalms are songs. They are poems. They're written to awaken and express and shape the emotional life of God's people. Poetry and singing exist because God made us with emotions, not just thoughts. Our emotions are massively important. Massively important. So, Just a reminder, the book of Psalms is technically the hymn book for the Jews. They would use these collected songs in worship of God. And so they are all hymns. That's important to keep in mind as you read through it. There's a poetic element. They connect with our emotions, probably... Uh, that's probably why the Psalms are among Christians' uh, uh, you know top books in terms of favorites because they connect with us at an emotional uh, level. So look like in Psalm five. We're going to talk tonight about joy. In fact, the first blank there in your notes is this: When we make the Lord our refuge, we step into eternal joy. That's what this psalm is about. It's about joy. And so let me ask you a quick question before we read: How's your how's your joyometer? I don't even know if that's a word, but how's the level of your joy in Christ? Uh, Would you call yourself joyful in your walk with God? But even a more important question than that is this. What would other people say about your level of joy? What would other people say, just by observing your life, what would they say about whether or not you are joyful in Christ? Look there with me, Psalm 5. Psalm 5, the small letters at the top before verse 1 this is inspired scripture in the original uh, psalm to the choir master for the flutes a psalm of david so david wrote a psalm just for the what's the term flautists another word Jeff for flute players the flautists he wrote it he wrote a a song just for the flute players so uh, i thought that was interesting and it says there in verse 1 Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my king and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. So far, so good. He's talking about talking to God in prayer. Then he says, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. So we know David's mentioned Evil doers. Now he's mentioning those who are opposed to him. He calls them enemies. And you say, well, wait a minute, we're talking about joy. And it doesn't seem like David's in a real joyful spot. He's surrounded by folks that don't like him, which was the case for most of David's life. We'll, we'll keep reading. He says, For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But, here's the contrast, let all who take refuge in you, what's the word there? Rejoice. Let them ever sing for, what's the word? Joy. And spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield." So we learn something just from reading this psalm. We learn that joy and hardship are not mutually exclusive. In other words, things don't have to be perfect in your life to live out a sense of deep abiding joy. In fact, if you're waiting for circumstances to get right for you to be joyful, you're going to spend your whole life waiting to be joyful. We've got to make some decisions and have the perspective that no matter what we're going through in life, there are reasons to rejoice. And that's what this psalm is about. And the major point of this is, again, when we make the Lord our refuge, when we know Him personally, we step into eternal joy. It says it in verse 11, Let all who take refuge in you rejoice, let them ever Sing for joy. Now, as we kind of dig into this psalm, there are six reasons that emerge, uh, or six sources of joy that, that we see in this text. And so I want to just share with you some sources of joy, some, some realities that ought to produce joy in our lives. Number one. He hears me when I pray. He hears me when I pray. If if you have made the Lord your refuge, in other words, if you've run to Him for salvation, if you've run to Him for relationship, if you've run to Him to trust Him alone, if you know the Lord personally, then you can know that He hears you when you pray. Back in verse 1, David says, "Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning, Give attention to the sound of my cry, my God and my, uh, my king and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord in the morning, you hear my voice. In the morning, I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch." So he's asking God to hear him, but he, he, he has the confidence there in verse three, "You hear me in the morning, you hear me when I pray. And the fact that you hear me when I pray makes me want to pray. That's, that's what David's saying in these first three. Verses. Now, there's some very practical, uh, helpful truths here that we can learn some things about prayer uh, that I want to point out. First of all, remember when you pray, you are talking to a king. You're talking to a king. Look what it says there in verse 1. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry. And look what he calls God. My king and my God. Hey, that can help you right there. If you're trying to increase the vibrancy of your prayer life, if your prayer life seems a little bit stale, a little bit dry, try calling God different. uh, Try using different titles for God. Instead of Lord, 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 or Father, 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 those are okay to say. It's okay to call God Father, we should. Okay to call God Lord, we should. But try calling Him your King, my King. And just see how that might change your perspective as you talk to God. Because remember when you pray, you are talking to a king. And if you, if you will remember that you're talking to the king of the universe, it'll change the way you pray. It'll change the confidence that you come to your prayer time with. John Newton, the slave trader who was saved and became a pastor and wrote many hymns, one of them being Amazing Grace, Wrote another famous hymn called Thou Art Coming to a King. And listen what he says in this hymn Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such none can ever ask too much. Isn't that good? His grace and power, you can can never ask God for something that's too big for him to handle, right? You can never bring a petition that's too big for God. You'll never come to God and and, and pray and ask for his help, and he'll say, oh, I can't help you there. can't help you there. Of course he can. He's a king. He's the king of the universe. And so remember when you pray that you are coming to a king. I admit sometimes in my own prayer life, my my prayer requests can, can... You know, really not be worthy of a king. I'm asking God to do some things, but maybe I'm not asking God to do some big things, right? In my life, in the life of my loved ones, in the life of my church, in my community, in my nation, in my world. We need to ask God to do big things because he is a king. So remember that when you pray. Secondly, remember when you pray, there are different types of prayers. I hope this really helps you. This is very practical. But he mentions here three different types of prayers. First of all, he mentions words there in verse 1. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Prayer at its essence is when you talk to God. That's what it is. You, you form words that come from your mind, uh, and you form them with your lips, and you are talking to God. So you pray silently in your heart, but you are talking to God. Words. And that's how Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew chapter 6. He says, when you pray, don't use meaningless repetition like the Gentiles do, but pray like this. And he gives us a template, a model for prayer to help guide our prayers so that we are talking to God about specific things in our lives. So the first type of prayer is when you just words, that you are talking to God, bringing Uh, your needs to Him, asking Him to do things, articulating the requests uh, uh, that are on your heart. The second type of prayer is uh, groanings. Groanings. Look what it says there in verse 1. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. This seems to be a different type of prayer. It, It speaks of being at a place in your life that... You, you don't even know what to say. You ever, you ever had a, a situation in life where it's so complex and so hard, you don't even know how to pray about it? You ever been there, Rachel? Have you ever been there? I've been there. I mean, I don't even know what to say to God, right? And David... Uh, found himself in some really deep waters and some really perplexing situations. And, and so David's saying, Lord, would you, would you hear me when I articulate words? Would you hear me when I'm expressing myself through language? But also, would you hear me when I don't even know what to say? And all I can do is just groan, right? Groanings. This reminds me of Romans eight twenty six and 27 where... Paul writes, there there are times when we're weak in prayer because he says, we do not know how to pray. We don't know what to say. We don't know how to pray as we ought to pray. And, And there's a weakness there. And Paul says, in the midst of that weakness, the Holy Spirit shows up as your intercessor. And He takes what's on your heart, when you don't know what to say, He takes the groanings of your heart, and then He takes them to the Father on your behalf and forms them into an intelligible request so God can come help you in the area that is causing you to groan. Isn't that good? The Holy Spirit will help you to pray when you don't know how to pray as you ought. And so David's like, consider my groanings. And when it comes to groaning, the Holy Spirit then comes to our Rescue, but then there's a third type of prayer David mentions here. He uses the word uh, "cry." Verse two: Give attention to the sound of my cry. This seems to be another level of prayer. This is probably uh, emergency prayer. This sounds something like this. You ready? Help. That's what he's talking about. If you want to do an interesting study one day, when you're reading through the Bible, maybe going through your Bible reading plan, take note of the short prayers of the Bible. And I want you to understand that some of the most theologically profound prayers you can pray are short prayers. So for example, over in uh, Matthew 14, when Jesus walks on the water and Peter says, can I come to you and And Jesus come on, and Peter steps out of the boat, and he's on the water. He's walking on water, and all of a sudden he starts thinking, I'm walking on water. He begins to look around. There's wind and there's waves, and and he takes his eyes off Jesus, and he begins to sink under the water. And when that happens, he doesn't say, dear God and almighty one, I'm pausing in this moment to discuss my needs and to come to you with acceptable words so that you might hear me and respond to my... What, and he says, Lord, help me! It was a cry. And sometimes you find yourself in a situation and then all you can do is just cry out, Help! Right? Help! And David says, Would you give attention to the sound of my cry but, but here's, here's what I want you to walk away with tonight. whether your prayers are articulate words or deep groanings or, or loud cries. remember when you pray that God answers prayer. Now, we all know that like we know that, we know that that's what we ought to believe that God answers prayer but at the core of our being do we really believe? Do we really believe that God will answer us when we come to Him with our request? If we really believe that we pray more than we pray. And we pray differently than we pray. And I, I love just the first part of this, this uh, passage. said, I'm surrounded by enemies. But I've got, I made God my refuge. I rejoice in that. And one of the reasons I can be joyful in the midst of this circumstance, this hard circumstance is, God hears me when I pray. Number two, another source for joy. He is holy and stands against wickedness. He is holy and stands against wickedness. In other words, God's character is perfect. His character is a character of, of, of holiness, righteousness, perfection. God is Light In him there is no darkness at all, which means you can trust him to always do the right thing. You can always trust him to stand for the right thing. You can always trust him to be on the side of that which is good and right. He's holy and stands against wickedness. Notice here the descriptions of the ungodly that David is dealing with. He says, you are not a God who delights in wickedness. So he calls the ungodly folks that are surrounding him wicked. Now now again, we don't know exactly who he's talking about. Sometimes David gives a little bit of information at the beginning about the context of the psalm, but here we just have to surmise who he's talking about. He could be talking about Absalom's rebellion. He could be talking about the Philistines. He could be talking about Saul trying to kill him. We don't know, but most of David's life he went through difficult times, and there were people that were after him, and so he calls them wicked here. They were not of God. He calls them uh, boastful in verse 5. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. He calls them evildoers. You hate all evildoers. He co- calls them here those who speak lies. Uh, he calls them in verse 6 the bloodthirsty. He calls them deceitful in verse 6. He's using all these words to describe ungodly people. And I just want to just kind of ask this question Wicked, boastful, evildoers. Those who speak lies, bloodthirsty, deceitful. Does any of that sound familiar to you? Does that sound like maybe what's going on in our culture today? Do we see some of those same characteristics lived out all around us? And so you may not have a a giant named Goliath trying to kill you. And you may not have a, a king on the verge of insanity named Saul that's after you. And you may not have a a son that's trying to usurp your authority and overthrow you, but you and I are surrounded by ungodliness. So we can identify with what David is experiencing in this psalm. Notice the description of the ungodly. Then notice how God views sin. How does God look at sin? First of all, he does not take pleasure in evil. Look what it says in verse 4. You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Pretty clear. God is never on the side of that which is wrong or evil or dark or sinful or wicked. He's never on that side. He takes no pleasure in evil. And God will not allow unforgiven evil into his presence. Look in verse 4. You're not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. Hey, look at me real quick. Show of hands. Anybody in here ever done anything evil? Raise your hand. All right, so this is a problem, right? (laughs) This is a problem. Because David says that evil may not dwell with you, and we've got some evil. Listen to me. That's why Good Friday and Easter Sunday are such a big deal. We need forgiveness. We need a Savior God sent His Son Jesus to come to this earth and go to the cross and take the punishment for our evil. That we might be forgiven of our sin. And then He proved He was who He said He was and could do what He said He could do when He rose from the grave early on Sunday morning. That's the gospel, right? So evil may not dwell with God, but God washes away our evil by the blood of the Lamb. Now we can have a relationship with Him, we can draw near to Him, we can go to heaven when we die and be with Him forever because our evil has been washed away. But make no mistake, if your evil is not forgiven, if your evil is not washed away, you will not go into the presence of God. You can only go to God through Jesus. That's why Jesus said in John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth, the life, no one comes to the Father. No one comes to the Father. Do you hear me? No one comes to the Father except through me. That's what Jesus said. Why? Because evil can't dwell with God. You have have to have that evil forgiven to be in God's presence. So so God will not allow unforgiven evil in His presence. Third, God hates evildoers. God hates evildoers. Look what it says in verse 5. The boastful shall stand Not stand before your eyes, you hate all evildoers, you destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. How many of you ever heard the phrase, God hates the sin and loves the sinner? Raise your hand. I have too. And I believe it. Because the Bible says, God so loved the world, that's all of us. But here it says that God hates the evildoers. So how do, you, how do we reconcile the psalm saying very clearly God hates evildoers and John 3.16, God so loved the world. How do you reconcile those two ideas? How do you deal with the, the tension found in Scripture? Well, I came across a quote from Warren Wiersbe, Barry. We are talking about him a little bit earlier. That really helped me with this. He wrote God's hatred of evildoers is not emotional, it's judicial. In other words, it's, it's what holiness requires that he stands against evil. If he did not stand against evil in a judicial sense, whereby it must be punished, then he would no longer be holy. If he just swept sin under the rug and kind of winked at our sin, not, he would not be a holy God. So God must stand against sin and against sinners as a judicial position. It's not this emotional, like God just doesn't like folks. It's his settled position as a holy God. Wiersbe says, it's an expression of his holiness. So God is holy, stands against sin and sinners, yet he loves sinners, so he sends his son to die for sinners. that makes sense? But we can't can't just cut that verse out of the Bible, can we? I mean, it it pretty clearly says that that he hates evildoers. As a holy God, he stands against sin. And let me, can I just tell you this? You don't want to stand before this God on judgment day without your sins forgiven. When you stand before God, you want to be in Christ. Then he says, God will destroy evildoers. That's judgment for those that don't run to him for refuge. He destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors a bloodthirsty and deceitful man. So what do we learn from these verses? We learn that God does not trifle with sin. God is a holy God. He's a just God. He's a righteous God. And we need to take God seriously. I've always uh, shaken my head through the years. You, you watch some of these award shows. It might be a, you know, the Grammys or the Oscars or you know, something of that nature. And, and they'll honor some artist and their, their songs or their movies are profane. Profane and wicked. And they get up and there's, I want to thank the man upstairs. And I think, What? First of all, he's not the man upstairs. He's the God of the universe. Secondly, you need to understand that that God that you are hat-tipping, he stands against your, your wickedness. And you need a Savior. James Montgomery Boyce writes this. There's a good way to measure how well you are praying and whether as you pray you are drawing close to God or merely mouthing words. In other words, this becomes an evaluation tool to see how your prayer life is doing. He says, if you are drawing close to God, listen to this, you will become increasingly sensitive to sin. Which is inevitable since the God you are approaching is a holy God. So if if you want to just evaluate, how am I doing in my Christian life? How am I doing in my prayer life? Am I I becoming more like Jesus? Am I drawing close to the heart of God? The closer you get to the heart of a holy God, the more sensitive you will be to things that are ungodly. And you ought to see that happening in your life. I, I know there are things that bother me now that didn't bother me 15 years ago. Or didn't bother me 10 years ago. And now they bother me. That's the... The Holy Spirit working in my life, showing me the character and nature of God in my life as I seek to draw near to him. So he hears me when I pray. He is holy and stands against wickedness. We'll speed up now. Sorry, we're going kind of slow. Number three, his love is abundant. We're talking about sources of joy. Why should we be joyful in our relationship with God? His love is abundant. Look what it says in verse 7. He's talking about the the evil, the bloodthirsty, the deceitful. Then he says, but I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down towards your holy temple in the fear of you. These wicked folks are far from you. You, you You have set your face against them as a holy God. But I, because I've made you my refuge, I can come near and worship you in your holy temple. Why? Look what he says through the abundance of your steadfast love. Now, here's the thought I want you to to take hold of from verse 7. God loves us enough to make a way for us to draw near. God loves us enough to make a way for us to draw near. Again, we're evil. We can't draw near in and of ourselves. Our evil must be forgiven, so God made a way. Hold your place, but look over in Ephesians chapter 3 with me. Ephesians chapter 3. Just when you thought you were done with Ephesians. We go right back to it. Ephesians 3, verse 11. Speaking of the gospel, the unveiling of the gospel. This was according to the eternal purpose that he he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Then look what he says about Jesus. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. In other words, because of what Christ has done, we can draw near to God with boldness. We can draw near to God knowing that we will be heard. His love is abundant. And David says, because of the abundance of your steadfast love, I can enter your house. I can come up really close to you and worship you in your holy temple. Boyce writes, It is by the mercy of God alone that any human being may approach Him. Let me say it again. It is by the mercy of God alone that any human being may approach Him. We we do not deserve to draw near to a holy God. But God loves us. God is merciful and God made a way for us to draw near to Him. To have a relationship with Him. His love is abundant. Number four, fourth source of joy. He leads me. Look in verse 8. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. Let me just remind you what you're up against in your Christian life. All right, Let me remind you. Until you get to heaven, even though you're a Christian, if you know Jesus... The the old sin nature still resides in you. The old you is still there. Now, the old you no longer has power over you unless you allow it. But Paul says in Romans 7, "I've, I've, I've discovered this principle that within me there's a war raging. What Paul's saying there is, there's the new me. God's made me a brand new creation in Christ, but I still am at war with the old me. Ever felt the battle on the inside? Paul said it like this. He says, "The good I want to do, I don't do it, and the things I, 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 I don't want to do, I do." There's this battle, this war. That's that's your you're you're warring against your old sin nature, your flesh. Which, by the way, is one of the reasons heaven's going to be so wonderful. Your flesh will be eradicated. No more, no more old you to deal with in heaven. That's pretty awesome. So, as a Christian. You have the flesh you are battling against every single day until you get to heaven. Got that? Not only that, you're surrounded by evildoers. He says it there uh, back in uh, verse 8. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. I'm surrounded by people that don't love you, that aren't godly, that, that don't have a worldview that is of the Lord, and, 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 and they're, they're against me, and, and, and perhaps they were influencing him. We're surrounded by ungodliness. So not only do we have the old sin nature pulling us in the wrong direction, the world is opposed to us and even influencing us to, to, to move away from the Lord. So that's, that's two strikes. Here's the third strike. The devil wants to destroy you. He's tempting and he's luring and he's condemning and, and he's doing what he does. Right? He's a roaring lion seeking those whom he can devour. So here's what you're up against in your Christian life. The world, the flesh, the devil. Living for Jesus is not easy. You need some help. And that's why David says in verse 8, Lead me, O Lord. I need your help. And this is in your notes. In this world, we need help to stay on the right path. He says, lead me in your righteousness. Lead me in accordance with what is right, what is good, what is of God. And one of the reasons we can be so joyful in our Christian life is... If we will allow him to have his way in our lives, he will lead us. Now, how God leads us and directs us is an, another six-week you know study for another day. But he doesn't. And and there's a lot you could talk about in, in terms of God's leadership for your life and how God directs you. And but here's the, the bottom line: God is sovereign and God can close doors and open doors, and he can get you where he wants you to be. Amen. Just trust Him. He leads you. He leads me. One of my favorite hymns, He leadeth me, O blessed thought. He leadeth me, O blessed thought. God, The God of the universe knows you by name. He knows the circumstances and situations of your life. And he will lead you through all of that. He will help you to navigate the world, the flesh, the devil. Give you direction so you can stay on the right path. Why would we not say every day, Lord, lead me. Lead me. I need your help. Number five, he protects me. He protects me. We're talking about sources of joy. Look in verse 11. Let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them. May those who take refuge in you, would you spread your protection over them? We can be certain that God watches over those who belong to Him. Hold your place, but turn to Psalm 91. Psalm 91, which is probably the most well known psalm and the greatest psalm about God's protection. I love Psalm 91. I pray this psalm quite a bit. Psalm 91 verse 1 says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. In other words, if God is your refuge, if you know Him personally, if you've come into a relationship with Him, you are living your life under the shadow of His wings. I will say to the Lord, My refuge and my fortress, another another picture of His protection, my God in whom I trust, He will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with His pinions, His, his feathers. And under His wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. And the rest of the psalms about His protection. How God shows up to help you in times of need. He even speaks of Him commanding His angels to, to watch over you. And I love the imagery here of God being a a fortress, you know, mighty fortress surrounding us, protecting us, but also the picture of feathers and wings. It's like a the picture of a of a mother hen drawing near uh, her her chicks. And if and if you have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, if you are born again, that's that's your spiritual reality. God has you under his wings. You are under his protection. And that should give you joy. And I said this a few weeks ago, and I'll say it a lot through the Psalms, because it's a true statement, and it's a wonderful statement. It's a statement that requires meditation and reflection. But here it is. If you are a Christian, nothing can touch your life unless God allows it. Period. Nothing can touch your life unless God allows it. And if God allows something hard to touch your life, He has a reason for it, and somehow He's going to ultimately use it for your good. You can't lose, can you? He protects me. By the way, I've heard people say, you know, I was in a wreck or I was in a scary situation, and boy, God, God just protected me. He got me through. And maybe some of you in here have experienced something like that, some, some very, something very scary or tragic, and God protected you through that. And you say, oh, I look at that moment and say, God protected me. But did you know there are a lot of things, we'll never know this out of heaven close calls, where God protects us. God's protecting us, we don't even know it. I shared this illustration with you before, but it really helps me to get that, that thought in my mind. Uh, and some of you remember this illustration, but uh, when my, my boys were little, uh, the grandparents bought one of those little electric um, you know, motorized things. It was like a little John Deere tractor. And, and I'll never forget my, my second son, Caleb, the little guy, he was driving the John Deere tractor in uh, my driveway, and he was headed right for the bumper of my truck, and it, and it came about to his, the height of his head. And he was just blissfully unaware, driving towards my truck, just head-on, you know, it's going to be bad. And I, I was walking beside him, and so I saw it coming. So I just, just, I just kind of scooted it with my leg and scooted it with my leg and just kind of changed the direction. He just sailed right on past the truck, smiling happy, having a great time. He had no clue. That his father was helping him. If I wouldn't have intervened, it would have been bad. I wonder how many times in our lives God has nudged us one way or the other. And protected us. And we didn't even know it. In fact, I think in heaven, we're probably going to be made aware of some of that. And think, wow, thank you, Lord. He protects me. Number six. He covers me with favor. Look in verse 12. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. That word cover means surround. You surround him with a with shield. And the, the word shield there is the word for a big shield. A shield that covers the entire body. But look what he says there. You bless the righteous, O Lord. Those that are walking in your way. Those that are seeking to, to follow you and live for your glory. You bless the righteous. You cover him with favor favor that word means goodwill or goodness that here's what that means it means that god and this is in your notes god's goodness towards us surrounds us if you know him if you're walking with him he pours out his goodness on you which is a good thing listen if god wants to do good things for you that's a good thing amen because God knows what He's doing, and He can do some good things and pour out some good things. We should be joyful that even when we are going through difficult times, God will cover us, surround us, pour out upon us His favor, His good will toward us. It's almost like David's saying, God is on your side. He's on your side, even when you feel surrounded. And so those are some sources of joy. Now, just real quickly, and we'll finish up. How do we express our joy? If all those things are true, and they are, and we can be joyful when we're on the mountaintops or joyful in the valleys, how do we express our joy? Two things. Number one, with singing. With singing, look in verse 11. Let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. In other words, people that are experiencing joy, it ought to be just a natural thing for them to sing. I believe, and the Bible teaches, that God created everything. He created the universe. In the midst of that universe, He created things like notes and rhythms. And He made it a, a, a possible for humans to write songs and melodies... And to sing, and he and he put that into the fabric of creation, so that we could express ourselves to God. I don't know what it is about music, but it's just an avenue that connects, doesn't it? And helps us connect with God, and helps us express ourselves to God. So we should express our joy with singing. And we should express our joy with surrender. Let's close with this. Look in verse 3. Back to how he starts the psalm. Oh Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. That's a plug, by the way, for morning prayer. Oh Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. Pref- preparing a sacrifice was an act of Worship. It's as if David is saying, I'm preparing my worship for you. I'm sacrificing for you. I'm surrendering to you. I'm I'm giving you my life anew and afresh. We can express our joy by surrendering daily to the one who is the source of all joy. Knowing that he he will give us that perpetual joy every day as we surrender anew and afresh to him. So, Psalm 5. We make the Lord our refuge. We know Jesus Christ, our personal Lord and Savior. We step into eternal joy. How is your joy meter? Is it high or low? If it's low, you might need to read this psalm a few more times. And again, not only self-evaluation, what would those around you say about your level of joy? If you say, well, they may not see the joy of Jesus in my life, ask God, to, ask God to do something fresh in your heart that your joy might overflow. Thank you for listening. We pray you've been encouraged and inspired by God's word. May the Lord richly bless you.